We're in Jonah chapter 4, and I'm actually going to start with the first, or with the last verse in um, chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to, better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? You may be seated. Good morning. It's good once again to be in the Lord's house. It's good once again to have the word open. Thank you, Scott, for the reading of the word. We left off in verse 5 last week. So Jonah went out of the city... And sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. In response to Jonah's anger toward God and the fact that he relented from destroying Nineveh, Jonah leaves the city. And he sets up camp on the east side of the city. Notice, he builds himself a shelter and enjoys the shade of this shelter, watching, waiting, wondering what is yet to come for Nineveh. The text doesn't say how long 
he sat there. But you get the idea that he's still angry over the fact that God relented from his wrath toward Nineveh. Jonah's relationship with God at this point is not what it should be. And it caused me to ask a question, maybe just right here out front at the beginning. How are things this morning with you and the Lord? How are things going with you and the Lord? Where are you at right now, today, with the Lord? Blaming God for not getting his way. Jonah, we saw last week, not by his words, but by his actions. His actions are speaking volumes at this point. Verse 5. God asks a question in verse 4. We see no verbal response in the text from Jonah. But we do see action from Jonah. And his actions are speaking volumes. Instead of ministering to the people of Nineveh, teaching them the ways of the Lord, pointing them toward this sovereign God, he leaves the city and becomes a passive onlooker, sitting by, waiting to see what's going to happen, as though God is going to somehow change his mind and conform his way to Jonah's desire. You know, when you don't agree with God, when you get angry with God perhaps over something, when you get angry with some of God's people, is it your tendency to take your ball and go home? Does your anger isolate you? Does your anger lead you to take a seat on the bench. You know, what we know about the body of Christ, we know there are no spectators. No passes to sit on the sideline. No home base to run to when your anger arises. You see, because the Bible calls you to deal with the anger when it comes, to not let the sun go down on your anger, to not allow the devil to have a foothold. Right? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. We saw last week, spoke briefly about this, about how the devil always gets a foothold when anger is given a residence in the heart. In the midst of Jonah's brewing and stewing, seated atop the east side of the city, the Lord shows up again, again, He's still not done with his prophet. He's not finished refining him. You know, right here, I just praise the Lord for his goodness. Aren't you grateful that he's not done with Jonah? You see, this this passage in this whole book just resonates with hope. 
He's not done with Jonah. God is about to show Jonah something more about himself. You remember back, look back at chapter 4, verse 2. Remember when Jonah, it says he was angry? And right after that, he prays. And he says, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. See, Jonah puts forth to God that he knows him. At least some of these things about him. And we talked about last week how it's a wrong response to the character of God. That he uses God's character as a means for his own disobedience. This is why I fled. I know who you are. But we need to understand that knowledge without wisdom and how to apply that knowledge is hollow. One writer said, simply accumulating data is not having wisdom. Wisdom has to do with the use of information we have rather than just its possession. When we talk about wisdom, we must consider a specific goal, the best means to reach that goal, and the materials necessary to get there. All three are embodied in the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to work with information in such a way that you accomplish the right purpose with the data in the right way. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The word and there brings these two parts of this proverb together. And we see oftentimes in the Proverbs how wisdom and knowledge are together. They're linked together oftentimes. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here we have the, the, the conjunction, but, giving us two different kinds of people, which is really a highlight of the book of Proverbs. It's showing us two different kinds of people. Those who are wise, those who are foolish. And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge... And we see that knowledge specifically of the Holy One is understanding. How might this apply to Jonah? You know, as I, as I consider his situation, I see him despising God's wisdom and instruction. I see him walking his own way, upholding his own wisdom above that of God's. And to properly navigate through the world that we live in, the starting point, according to the scripture, seems to be a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now this text is not simply pointing toward Jonah. It fits Jonah where he's at in chapter 4. But I believe it fits a good number of believers in the faith. 
Perhaps, like Jonah, it's timely in that it fits your situation right now. Wisdom in your own eyes is contrasted with fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord and walking in evil are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. You can't fear the Lord and be content walking in an evil path. Notice too in that Proverbs 3 text, the result of fearing the Lord. It says it would be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Walking in the fear of the Lord, in contrast to walking in your own wisdom, brings with it physical, mental, emotional well-being. Jonah's anger comes about not because he's walking in the fear of the Lord. It comes as a result of being wise in his own eyes. He believes that he knows better than God how he ought to apply his own character. I mean, think about that for just a moment. An all-wise God being briefed by man on how to do something. Remember in the book of Romans? Where he points out that God's the potter, we're the clay. Who are you as the clay to make demands of the potter? Doesn't he have the right to do what he, in his good pleasure, in his goodwill, would decide to do? And ought not we be okay and content with what he would decide to do? You might recall when Jonah was asked back in chapter 1, there was a flurry, there were a flurry of questions that came his way in verse 8 of chapter 1. And then as you look to verse 9, you see how Jonah identifies himself. He says, first of all, I'm a Hebrew. But then he says, and I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And I was reminded of this as I was looking again to these Proverbs and thinking through the text and where we're at. That if you identify yourself as one who fears the Lord, your actions ought to follow suit. To say that you fear the Lord and yet still operate according to the wisdom in your own eyes, your identity and your testimony are out of alignment. And sadly, Jonah is not the only one operating this way. Because you see, I believe we profess and say, I'm a Christian, and yet, how often are you content walking in your sin? How often does that sin not bother you? Or, I'm a Christian, and yet I have become enslaved to financial debt. I've become wise in my own eyes, thinking I knew best. Or declaring I'm a Christian, and yet perhaps you live and operate like your worldly neighbor down the road. Or I'm a Christian, 
And yet you find yourself distancing yourself from the Word of God. Or I'm a Christian. And yet the thought of becoming more like Christ is something I very seldom think of. I'm a Christian, and yet I seem to be a wall builder, pushing others aside, caring very little, if any, for the souls of the lost. I'm a Christian, and yet I seem content giving God my scraps and my leftovers of each day. I'm a Christian, and yet some of my co-workers and friends would never know it. Or, I'm a Christian, and yet my spouse and children might be inclined to testify otherwise. James 3 asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct. By the way, side note, God's wisdom is shown best through your good conduct. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, listen to this, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This wisdom from above is intended for the believer in Jesus Christ, church. For Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And in Proverbs 4, 5, and 7 says, Get wisdom. Get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. You see, Jonah's conduct right here in chapter 4 and through much of this book, but we see it in particular coming to a head right here in chapter 4. It says, Mr. Jerry Bridges refers to it as conduct unbecoming of a saint. That's Jonah right here now. His works have not been done in the meekness of wisdom. He seems to harbor anger and self-seeking is no doubt evident in the text. The results are confusion. Not health and strength to the bones. Jonah seems to be very weary of it all. He's not getting his way. It's all bubbling up inside of him. His eyes are on self, his needs, his desires, his pleasures. 
He's operating as though God owes him something and needs to conform to his ways. The church, as the proverb writer said earlier, wisdom is the principal thing. It's imperative that we get wisdom. And, and to see that wisdom from above looks much different than wisdom from below. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Be willing to yield yourself unto the Lord for his purposes. Seek to find out the will of the Lord and go there. Move where he's leading. Go where he's sending. Proclaim his word to those he brings to your attention. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of this, 15 through 17. He says, see that you walk circumspectly, carefully, with eyes open. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk circumspectly, walk carefully because the days are evil. Jonah is seen sitting down on the east side of the city in Jonah 4, verse 5. The believer is to walk wisely, not foolishly, redeeming his time, to steward each day as a gift from the master. And here it is. He's to prioritize the will of the Lord and to walk carefully in that way. But I don't know what the will of the Lord is for my life. Perhaps, perhaps you've forgotten. The word of the Lord is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. You've been given the word. Or perhaps you've forgotten Corinthians 2, verse 12, where Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Church, not only do we have his word, but we've been given his Holy Spirit. The Bible says dwells within us forever. We have the word and we have the spirit. Walking aimlessly, walking as fools, walking according to the wisdom in your own eyes. The Bible's clear, this is the wrong way. And Jonah is walking currently in anger toward God, toward Nineveh, toward any little thing that might come his way. And we'll see that the Lord brings something more his way in the remaining verses here in chapter 4. He's in misery, grief. The text shows the reader the heart of Jonah, and yet it also reveals the heart of God. The Lord is showing up in Jonah's life once again through yet another merciful provision. Look at verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. There's the misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. 
I'd like to speak to the Lord's school of preparation. It seems as though the Lord is preparing Jonah for something in particular. He has been preparing Jonah, trying to get Jonah's attention. See, this book of Jonah, it's referred to as the book of Jonah, but in so many ways it reveals the heart of God. And God's preparation work in the life of his prophet Jonah. God's preparation work in the life of Jonah. And I was thinking about God's preparation work in my own life, in the life of the body, and how God is preparing you, and how he goes about doing that. He desires for us to have a heart of God, to have a new heart, and that we would then operate according to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God being merely one of many character traits of God, but to operate by means of His wisdom, not our own wisdom, with the goal of bringing glory to God. That's the goal. Why are you here? I hope you understand that you're here. That you're breathing air today. To give glory to God. There's a purpose for you being here. For taking up space. For sitting in that chair. God has a purpose and a plan. And the big picture is that each one of us might give him glory with this one life we have. And to do anything otherwise... We're wasting this life. Jonah 1 verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh. Cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. The Lord in his school of preparation is calling upon Jonah to go to Nineveh. Verse 4 which comes on the heels of verse 3 and Jonah's disobedience, we see part of the Lord's school of preparation is sending out a tempest, a storm on the sea. Verse 17, we see that following his landing in the sea, the text says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish. Part of the Lord's preparations in the life of Jonah. The Lord wasn't done with Jonah. And he literally swallows him up and holds him captive, if you will, for three days. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah back onto dry land. The Lord's not done with Jonah. He puts him back into play. And he gives him the call once again. Arise, go to Nineveh and preach to it the message I tell you. The Lord's preparation work is still going on. And the call comes once again. And Jonah goes this time according to the word of the Lord, the text says. In chapter 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God following the proclamation of the word from Jonah. 
I believe part of that preparation in the life of Jonah was allowing Jonah to see that God's word transforms hearts. That it's not Jonah. The text doesn't say they believe Jonah, but they believe God. Part of his preparation work in your life perhaps is to get you to understand that this word is what transforms lives. You don't but your obedience to his calling in your life to proclaim this word is what he's after to get you to understand the power of the word. It's able to save. Chapter 4, we see that this thing that God did displeased Jonah and he became angry. Part of that preparation work God has in your life follows up in verse 4 by asking that question, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And we see right here in verse 6, the beginning of more preparation the Lord is doing in the heart of Jonah. He prepares a plant for him to come up over him. You see, the Lord's preparations are intended to accomplish His purposes. That ought not come as a surprise. As the sovereign God, His preparations are intended for His good. His preparations may include using you for some particular purpose. His preparations may have you on an assignment. His preparations may include a stay in the belly of a fish. A period, perhaps, of discipline. His preparations may entail you doing something uncomfortable. His preparations may include using something of nature, plant life, wind, sea, or something in his own creation like a little tiny worm. He might use something to intersect with your life to teach you a valuable lesson. He might use something, a circumstance, perhaps, to open your eyes for your need for the Lord. Your need for a steadfast dependency upon Him. Everything, this is important, and this is what we see in the book of Jonah. Everything in creation is open to His disposal Being an infinitely wise, all-powerful, sovereign God. You see, God has all resources at his fingertips to carry out the work he deems necessary in your life. And the Lord's preparations are wonderful to see in the text. As, As the sovereign king of the universe He's making preparations to conform you into the image of His Son. That's sanctification. He is sanctifying you, shaping you, refining you, squashing you maybe perhaps, oh, making it hurt a little bit perhaps, all for the purpose of conforming you into the image of His Son. Praise the Lord! Thinking big picture, 
I want you to know too that he's making preparations for you to be with him in heaven. You see, his preparations for you right now, yes, oh yeah, he's doing that. He's at work. But he's also at work for that time to come when you get to be with him. He's preparing a place for you. So what kind of preparations is he making for Jonah here in chapter 4? Well, first of all, we see the Lord God prepared a plant. He made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Do you find it interesting? I do. Do you find it interesting that God prepares anything for Jonah at this point? I know what my inclination would be. You want to continue going your own way, Jonah? Fine. Go on. I'll find someone else who's interested in being used for my purposes. But that's not what God does in the text. And the fact that he doesn't do this speaks volumes about the merciful heart of God, church. Not only is God merciful toward the lost souls of Nineveh. Let's get this. He's merciful as well toward his own wayward children. See, he comes alongside Jonah and ministers to his spirit, providing a plant for shade in the midst of his misery. It was was just the thing Jonah needed at this point. And yet... It arrives as a test. How is Jonah going to respond to this plant? How's he going to respond? And you know, it got me thinking about how these things perhaps God has prepared for you. These mercy gifts that he has given to you. For Jonah, it was a plant. Pretty simple. Thinking about what it is maybe that he's sent your way. Maybe it's financial in nature. Maybe it's an increase in pay. And the test would be, how are you using the increase in pay? Are you using it to increase your standard of living? Or are you using it, recognizing perhaps that you are a channel through which God would want to use you to bless someone else, perhaps? Perhaps you're considering a new home. Where would he have you go? And for what purpose would he have you go? Perhaps you're considering a new job. What might he have you do for his glory? Perhaps you're considering or thinking about weighing additional children, what that looks like. and Are you open to what he might have in store for you? Whether that's through biological means or whether that's through adoption. Asking of God what he would want. Asking of God what he would desire. 
You see, the response to the plant from the Lord, and if you look at this in the text, the response Jonah gives is shocking. Look at verse 6. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. He literally rejoiced with great joy. It's shocking because to this point in the text, he's been anything but grateful. I mean, you just, he hasn't been happy about anything. Go back to chapter 1. Not happy about his commission from God. Not happy about the storm. We presume he's not happy about being tossed overboard. I don't know that any of us here would be happy about that one. Not happy about the fish, even though the fish saved him. Still not happy in Jonah 3, it seems, about the commission from God. Not happy about the repentance of Nineveh. Not happy about God relenting from his anger toward Nineveh. And now right here in Jonah 4, verse 6, the Lord prepared a plant to provide shade for his head, and the text says he was very grateful. Now, let's evaluate the cause of his rejoicing, church. God had shown compassion toward him by providing a shelter from the heat. One writer says, Jonah was pleased because at last, after all the compassion of God for other people, God was finally doing something for Jonah. Selfish? Of course it was. And petty, too. For the plant was a trifle compared with the conversion of the entire city of Nineveh. So let me ask you, what is it that you greatly rejoice over? What is it that causes you great rejoicing? Do you rejoice only when the Lord is tending to your needs? Does your rejoicing align with God's rejoicing? Are you grateful only when your needs are met? Or are you able to see God's purposes being orchestrated even in the lives of others? You remember that text that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. I think we do a much better job at mourning and weeping with those who are weeping than we do with rejoicing with those who rejoice. On the heels of God, preparing a plant for Jonah's head. Look, look what comes next. But as, verse 7, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. Oh, in, in, in the Lord's school of preparations, he brings a blessing, which takes the form of a plant, but he can also bring a trial. He can bring a worm. What do worms like to do with plants? Some of you in here are very knowledgeable about that very thing. You know worms like to eat them. They do that very well. The very thing provided for Jonah's comfort is now being taken away. 
And yet I want you to see that both the plant and the worm were prepared by the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Amen? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job, right? Chapter 1. Chapter 2. The God who extends a merciful plant is also the same God who sends a little worm to eat the plant. And so how is Jonah going to respond to this one? But before we answer, there's more. God's not done. There's more than the worm. Look at verse 8. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So for the record, here's what we have. God prepared a plant, a worm, a vehement east wind, and a scorching sun. The text gives Jonah's response to the plant. But what of the worm, the wind, and the sun? Look at the end of verse 8. Then he wished death for himself. And said, and by now this is starting to become too familiar. It is better for me to die than to live. See, the Lord had just taken Jonah through a few object lessons. Using a plant, a worm, strong easterly wind, and the scorching sun. And in the wisdom of God... He takes these four ingredients and he mixes them into the current life situation of Jonah with the goal of helping him see clearly. (laughs) What is it God wants Jonah to see by setting before him a plant and a worm, a strong wind and, and sun? What is it that God wants you to see when you're in the midst of a storm, a trial? What's he wanting you to see? What does he want you to see when you face these trials of many kinds? Is it possible that he desires to get your attention off of yourself? Is it possible that he's humbling you? It's possible he's bringing all these elements together in your life to address a sin issue. It's possible he's zeroing in on the obstacles that are weighing you down, the very things that are distancing you from the Lord, things that are damaging your marriage, things that are damaging your relationship with your children. Is it possible that God simply wants to accomplish his purposes through all of this? And we need to remember, God has everything in creation open to his disposal to use as he sees fit. Look at God's question in verse 9. It's a very similar question from verse 4 with some different implications. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. So the question in verse 4 is simply, is it right for you to be angry? We see right on the heels of what God did in relenting in his destruction 
Nineveh. Jonah seems to be angry directly at God. Here in verse 9, God asks the question, is it right for you to be angry? And then he adds three words about the plant. The question gives you insight into God's wisdom on the situation. You see, he knows the source of Jonah's anger. This time it has to do with the plant. What about the plant? Well, from what we can tell in the text, it's no longer providing shelter for his head. The worm has done his work. The wind is doing its work. The sun... Shining brightly. All four of these elements have been used of God. All four accomplish their intended purposes. All four are under the control of God. And yet the cause for Jonah's anger is the absence of the plant. How often, church, do you find yourself in a very similar situation where Many things may be at work in your life. And instead of recognizing the God who is in control of all things, the sovereign God of the universe, instead of recognizing Him and what He is preparing for you, you got your eyes focused on this one little thing. Notice God not only exposes the cause of Jonah's anger, but he allows the reader to see the pettiness of Jonah's anger as well. He's getting angry about a plant now. Come on, Jonah. Isn't that the nature, though, of an angry heart? Originally, you get angry over something big. Perhaps you'd be inclined like Jonah in chapter 4, verse 4, to get angry at God. Then some other circumstances start to take place and you start to get angry at them. And then the littlest thing might happen. And because your heart is far from God, you just lose it. You complain. You become bitter. You're getting angry over something petty. Anybody ever done that? Something petty, something real small gets you angry. Just like Jonah. So let's be careful not to point a finger at Jonah because I believe that many of the things Jonah is going through, (laughs) we've been there too. God in his wisdom knows what question to ask. He not only exposes the cause of Jonah's anger and shows him the pettiness of his anger, but he is pointing to the source of the object in question. You're angry about the plant? Jonah, I brought that plant. I made that plant to form its shady leaves over you. The plant you rejoiced over? That was my plant, sent on loan for a time. I sent the plant for a reason, Jonah. I saw that you rejoiced in it. In fact, you held it as your prized possession. But Jonah, I want you to see that I am all you need.
I want you to see, Jonah, that the plant is at work on my bidding. The worm that ate the plant, he worked at my bidding. The wind and the sun, they're carrying out their work at my bidding, Jonah. You see, Jonah's response in verse 9 is characteristic of how far his heart had gone from the Lord. And he said, it's right for me to be angry even to death. That's where Jonah's at right now. Once again, he wishes death on himself. You know, Jonah, it seems here, has hit rock bottom. He's self-absorbed, pitying himself, eyes on self, caring not for the interests of others. Philippians 2 speaks of that, right? You ever been here? Where Jonah's at? See, the school of the Lord's preparations may very well take you to the bottom. Might be messy. Might be uncomfortable. Might take you to the end of yourself. The Lord's preparations for your life are never without purpose. And you can be assured that they're always pointed toward the goal of conforming you into the image of Christ so that you can give God glory with your life, so that as you give glory with your life, others might see Christ in you and in turn give glory to God with their lives. Hope that we can rejoice over the things God rejoices over. And, and, and church, that includes loving others who may not be in your circle. Loving others who may not be in your circle. It includes showing mercy toward the outsiders. Willingly proclaiming the word of God to those Ninevites in your sphere of influence. Look at how the book ends. I'll read verse 10 first. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. I believe there are a couple lessons that we we can learn here from the Lord's school of preparation. Some things we can learn here as we close. First lesson is what not to do. Do not set your heart on self or stuff. Let's just put that in brackets. Things that are temporary. You've had pity on this plant, Jonah. Something you didn't work for, nor did you have anything to do with its growth. That plant grew up overnight, perished overnight. You have no ownership of that plant, no rights to that plant, no reason, Jonah, to be angry about its absence. I brought it into your life for a time for a specific purpose, to awaken you to your own sin, to help you see the pettiness of your anger, to expose your self-seeking. Look to me, Jonah. Set your heart to do my will. Everything is at my disposal, Jonah. I've been preparing you that you might incline yourself to my will and rejoice over the things that I rejoice in. 
The Lord continues in verse 11. Having pointed out the thing Jonah pitied, the Lord now unveils what he pities, or whom he pities in this case. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and left, and much livestock? I believe, in addition to not setting your heart on self or stuff and things that are temporary, I believe another lesson right here is to set your heart on the Lord's perspective, on those things which are eternal. Should I not have pity on Nineveh? Jonah sets his heart on a plant. The Lord sets his heart on Nineveh. Jonah set his heart on the destruction of Nineveh. The Lord set his heart on mercy toward Nineveh. The book of Jonah ends with the Lord getting the final word. It's a question. It's very unique in that way. He gives his heart on the matter. On things that matter most to him. And you know, the things that matter most to him, not how much money you have, not how big of a house you live in, not what kind of car you're driving, not what kind of job you have, not how many children you have. your personal comfort. Your personal desires. I think in the book of Jonah, we see some of the very things that matter most to God. And we're left with a picture of the heart of God toward people. The heart of God toward people who are far from Him. We're left with what God thinks about those people. His perspective is given to us in this book of truth. And you know, all the more reason then, church, to be a student of this word. Not simply a reader, but a student. One who hungers, one who thirsts for this word, more of this word. The lighting in this word. And and as we talked back when we were going through the Psalms in Psalm 1, that delighting in the word only comes as we delight ourselves in God. In who he is. All you need to know about the heart of God has been given to us in the Word. You've been given the Spirit of God to help you discern the Lord's perspective. You have a light for your feet. You have a guide in the Spirit for your steps. You have a lamp for your path and you have a teacher in the Spirit to instruct you in the very words of Christ. And I know many debates, they're out there on this last verse, on who are these 120,000 persons, right? 
Maybe you were thinking that this week. For the record, I believe in context here. Some are holding that these are infants in Nineveh. Um, I, I tend to believe based on the context, based upon what God has called Jonah to do, that he's speaking to the whole of Nineveh. And granted, no doubt, the population may have been more than 120,000. I understand that. But based on the call, the reason Jonah is sent to Nineveh to begin with is due to their wickedness as a people. These people not only had this moral aspect of, of good and bad, that they, they had this spiritual lostness in this great city. Shall I not be concerned about them? And no doubt God's concerned about all things, and he includes livestock here. That doesn't surprise me, because you know what he's used in these little things? He orchestrates these little things. We see it throughout, and we see it here in chapter 4 in particular. How he takes a worm and a plant. He takes all these things at his disposal, and he cares about them, and he uses them for his purposes and his preparation work in your life and in mine. The perspective of the Lord is this. That he desires all people to come to repentance. His, his desire is that none should perish. Second Peter tells us that. When the word of the Lord accomplishes its purpose and people repent of their sin and begin to walk in obedience to the Lord, this is a cause for rejoicing. Amen? That's a cause for rejoicing. The text says in Luke 15, 10, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Ought that perspective be reserved for the angels in heaven alone? Shouldn't men and women on earth, men and women who bear the name of Christian, shouldn't you, shouldn't we of all people have the same perspective as God on this matter? And I believe that's one of the lessons for Jonah in this text. I believe it's a lesson for you and me as well. Gaining the heart of God to understand what the will of the Lord is. Perhaps some of you this morning need a new heart. And we know that God's the one who opens blind eyes, right? He does that work and allows us to be able to see. He's the one who gives us that new heart. And gaining that new heart Helps us to understand then what the will of the Lord is. And aligning your heart then toward that will of the Lord. What is it that he's wanting you to do? What is he wanting you to be about? And that might look different for all of you, but the bottom line is, we talked about earlier, giving glory to God with your life. How do you do that? There are many ways you can do that. Surrendering your will, Luke 9.23, denying yourself in exchange for the things that matter most to God. Prioritizing your life then according to the things that matter most to God and realizing that eternity and the souls of men matter greatly to God. You see, the purpose of the book of Jonah, one writer sums up, I believe, very well. To create in our hearts a concern for people's souls as great as his pity and compassion for Nineveh. The Ninevites are all around us in our modern world. People who are so spiritually blind that they cannot discern between their right and their left. 
The big question is, who is concerned about their immortal souls? The government, social services, the entertainment industry, big business? Our objective as believers must be people's eternal welfare. God has addressed man's destiny in the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given us the privilege and responsibility of making that gospel known. A couple responses and then we're done. You know, it's not a surprise that today's Ninevites are being ignored and pushed aside. Unless and until you acquire God's heart on people's eternal welfare, you'll opt out of sharing the gospel with them. One old writer years, years ago said, heart work is hard work. The wisdom of God is put on display in the child of God through his good conduct. You see, you might know a lot about Jesus as you sit here today. You might have a good handle on where things are at in the Bible. You might be able to do really well in having a sword drill and open it up and find in the verse. The wisdom of God is seen in your life through your good conduct. Wisdom is not having knowledge, but knowing how to put that knowledge to best use. Christ is, according to Corinthians 1.30, Christ is the wisdom of God. So here's, here's what I believe. I believe the Bible teaches this. If you don't have Christ, you're not very smart. Corinthians 1 would tell us that very thing. The wisdom of the world. You might have degrees. You might have a bunch of letters after your name. But without Christ, it's all going to burn up. You see, it's your need, your need for God's heart. For the Lord's perspective on things. A new heart. Without that, we can talk about all these other things and it really doesn't matter. But you need to have God's heart. You need to have His renewal in your life, which only comes through one way. It comes one way, the Bible says. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which you must be saved. It is Jesus Christ, period. That's the way. Now, that's not a popular message today. It's not. That's not very tolerant today. That's what this word says, though. In addition to God's heart, understanding your need for God's wisdom. Your need for God's wisdom. And here, here's, here, here's some things that, as we think about needing his wisdom, 
Admit that you need his wisdom. Proverbs 11, 2, with the humble is wisdom. Fear the Lord. As sovereign king, give way to what he says. Study the word. Wisdom of God is given to you in the pages of scripture. And pray for wisdom. James 1, 5 says, if you're lacking it, ask for it. And he gives generously to all without finding fault. Do you ask him for wisdom on how to proceed with a particular Ninevite you're trying to reach for the Lord? And remember your goal. Your goal in all of this, your goal in all of this is with your one life to give God glory. I encourage you to write down the names of one, two, three people. People that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. People who need to hear the gospel. People who need to see your good conduct put into play that they might see the light of Christ. You see, the easy thing is just to write down names on a piece of paper. That's the easy thing. I believe the response from the text is not simply to think up, conjure up, oh, I know John and I know Joe and I know Bill. Yeah, I'll, I'll pray for those guys. Pray for them. But let's take it a step further. I believe the response from the text is, is showing us the things that matter most to God. And if we have the heart of God, I believe one of the things that we'll do as a takeaway from this text, from this book, Study in Jonah, is make it known, willingly making it known to others who this great God is that we serve. That our words would speak of Christ. That our life would show forth Christ. That there would not be some contradiction of what we say and what we do. I praise God for this book of Jonah. It's been wonderful for me personally. And once again this past week, the Lord gave me a sermon illustration as I had a conversation to sit down with a man who's a referee. We had a breakfast and was able to tell him out in the parking lot before we left, I don't want to minimize what you're going through, brother. And I use that in a general term because he's not a brother in the Lord. I don't want to minimize your situation, but here's what I want you to see. From my perspective, my advice to you is going to be different than maybe some of your other buddies. My advice to you, my counsel to you, is that you first see the big picture. And the big picture is this. You must first deal with the sin in your life. You must first get right with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus will not take away perhaps this problem. In fact, I told him, you might have more problems after Christ is in you. But I said, you're going to be able to navigate through these problems. You're going to be able to know that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're going to fear no evil for the Lord is with you. His rod and staff are going to comfort you through it. And I wanted him to know that the most important thing is not this current trial he's going through, but it's the lostness 
of his soul. I don't know if anybody's ever told him. Church, this week, today perhaps, there may be people that you know who are right now going to hell because they do not have any relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you do not walk out of here today. Put that name on paper, yes. But you follow up with that person some way, some shape, some form, whether it's phone, whether it's email, whatever it looks like. Get together if you can, that's the best. And make sure they know the truth of the word. Praise the Lord for the book of Jonah. I pray it's been a blessing to you. And pray that we'll continue to learn even more over the next few weeks about this heart of God. We're going to transition from the heart of God looking at the heart of Christ himself in the Gospels over the next four weeks. What is the heart of Christ toward the lost and the hurting? We're going to read about that and study that in the Gospels over these next four weeks. Let's pray. Father, it's so humbling to see your preparation work in the life of your prophet, Jonah. I pray, Lord, that it would cause us to take a step back from from the trials that we might currently be in. To see, to be able to observe, Lord, all the elements that you have involved and at work in our lives. And to know and to be able to rest assured from your word that you are preparing for us something for your good, for your purposes, to conform us into the image of your son. And Lord, right now, for some right here, it may be painful. They may be going through a real painful time. They may be going through a time of suffering. They may be feeling like Jonah. They may be feeling angry. Angry at every little thing that happens in their life right now. Father, I pray they would be able to see from your word that the new heart that you give allows them to be able to access and to know about this character of yours. Part of this character we see in the text today is this wisdom of God. To be able to operate then in our lives with this kind of wisdom this kind of discernment and understanding that we would rejoice over the things that you rejoice about, Lord. That we would walk in your ways and ultimately give you glory with this life and point other people to the one who alone is worthy. I pray, Lord, we would spend our days, the remainder of our days, considering the eternal implications That we would, as we see lost people, not just see them, but Lord, we would be heartbroken toward them. We would see them as you see them here in this text in Jonah. And that we would willingly get your word out, knowing that your word, your word alone, has the power to save. May we be willing, obedient instruments and tools that you can use, Lord, 
And may we be content whatever may come our way. Understanding and knowing that you are sovereign. You have all things under your control. And that you are at work. And that you are at work and at work and at work to shape and refine us each and every day of our lives as long as we have these earth tents. Thank you, Father, for that work you're doing. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.